Hello, Emma? Yes, hi. Hi, Emma. Hi. Hi, it's Hala. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Can you hear me okay? Yes, I can. Ready to get started? Welcome to Candidate, real conversations with women running for office. I'm your host, Devin Handy. Normally, I host Hellbent Podcast, a political commentary show that approaches current events and public policy with a heavy intersectional feminist lens. But we've teamed up with Emily's List to introduce you to some of the women who are running for office in the 2018 midterm elections. This week, we are going to talk about local politics. Federal races are obviously sexy, and I do realize that I'm playing fast and loose with the word sexy here. And they garner lots of attention from news and media outlets. But local and state offices are often where tangible change happens for constituents. I had the pleasure this week to speak with Delegate Hala Ayala of Virginia and Emma Collum of Florida about running for local seats and why they chose to get involved at a more local level. Local politics is where real change can happen. From solving traffic problems to gun reform on a state level, local and state offices are designed to serve their constituents directly. It is also where pressing issues can be solved at a faster pace than in the federal government, which is notoriously glacially slow. For example, while no common sense gun reform legislation has passed at the federal level in the last few years, Moms Demand Action for Common Sense Gun Reform has proposed and supported successful reform legislations in 15 states. And that is not nothing. So get excited about your local seats. I'm pleased to announce that our guest today is lifelong Virginia resident and activist, Delegate Ayala. She is running for the 51st District House of Delegates in Virginia, and it is a pleasure to have her today. So thank you so much for joining us, Delegate Ayala. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. Of course. So I think the first thing I really want to talk about is why you opted to get involved in local politics. Well, it was sort of not expected and planned. Um, I knew that I uh, wanted to run for office, but the reasons why I ran for office came to fruition after the um, election of 2016. Um, As a lifelong activist, well, not a lifelong activist, I could say that I was. My mother (laughs) would debate that with me. (laughs) But as a person who grew up in Virginia, um, you know, I think this, this 2016 elections were unprecedented. Um, and you, you know, you see women running for office. You think this is it. She's going to shatter the glass ceiling. We're, we're finally making progress. We made progress with the, the election of our first African American president. And now we're making more progress. And that all came tumbling down on election day of 2000, November of 2016. And I think I was devastated um, as a w- woman. Um, I knew it was an uphill battle and climb, but as what we elected, I never thought that America would turn a deaf ear to sexism or racially charged rhetoric and or a racist or a sexual harasser and um, a homophobic, a xenophobic, you know, individual things that we openly knew about someone who we do not categorize as a leader. You know, you think this is not the definition of a leader, and yet he is now our leader. <laughs> you right. know, so it was, it was uh, you know, chaos for me. And, you know, it was very, um, 
I was sad. I was devastated. I was everything. And as an activist for women, uh, for women across the Commonwealth of Virginia, you, you, you fight for equality on all facets, you know, for families, for, for wages, for health care, for all the things that matter to families and community members most, you know, across this nation, you know, not just in Virginia. And it just seemed to, to really take a downward spiral. spiral. Um, the Women's March came. We marched. We, we protested. We, you know, voiced our dissent and discontent with what was happening in our nation and how painful this was for us. And um, you ask yourself the question, what is next? You know, and so I think all of that, you know, when you, when you had hope on the ballot, now you have despair. You can't just sit on the sidelines. You have to, as Barack Obama said in his last speech, pick up your clipboard, get on your sneakers, and knock some doors and run for office. And I think collaboratively that sentiment says these policies that Trump is going to, to unfold as we've seen them now in present day, it's going to be in our backyard. And we need a first line of defense. Sure. So I think to that, I think there's two parts of that that I really want to talk to you about. The first being, you know, you said there was a lot of despair after the 2016 election. And I think a lot of people felt that way. And a lot of women I've spoken to then kind of took up the mantle to run for Congress or take on Mm -hmm. these issues at a federal level. Right. It's the president. That's the problem. We have to fight him, take the fight there to the federal level. But you know, it's also so important to do at the state level. So what, what was it, was it something that you just knew that you wanted to do for Virginia and you wanted to connect with your community in that way? Or, or what was the, the thought process there? I would have ran for president the next day. If I could have, <laughs> you know, I felt, you know, the mother in me, the protector of my community and the love I have for not only my community, but the United States of America, I felt that was all on the line. You know, I, I, I just felt a, a state of emergency. It was urgent that I did something. I don't think I had all of those thoughts gathered into to one um, coherent discussion. I think it was just a lot of emotion, a lot of fear, a lot of, I know I can do this, and I love my community. I've been a, a resident of my community for over 35 years. I know it at the back of my hand. I've been working on campaigns for over 10 years and activism. I can do this. And I, and I knew the importance of it because it didn't, it was, you didn't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the things that were, you know, if you understand politics, you understand how policy works. It's top down, right? And you, you need to know that, that, that somebody's there pushing that green button in the general assembly level or the local levels to make sure that those policies that are not proactive and positive and going to move your state or your community in a positive way forward are protected. Or, or there's a defense there. And that is why, um, yes, you run to serve and you run for the love of your community and your constituents and your country. But there's also a, a second part to that. There is, you are the person that has the voice at the table. You have a seat at the table. And if you're not there to, to have your voice at the table, somebody else will be there. And you have to come to, to the decision, is that other person, you know, fit for serving? You know, is that person 
um, able to look out for the better interest of your community and do they know your community and do they love it? And all of that is what promoted my um, and the election and the sentiment of Trump. All of that encompassed says, okay, I'm the best person. If not me, who? You know, who could run for office? So it, it was just, it was very scary. It's not something that you easily come to a decision like, <laughs> I'm going to do it. I'm going to run. It's like, oh, crap, I'm going to run. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Wait, wait. Did I just say that out loud? <laughs> I did. Yeah. Well, and, and I and I do think what I, I always talk about sort of the concept of local politics. And I, what mm-hmm. I like to say is local politics is sexy because that you can really affect real and immediate change, visual tangible change on your community at a local level and do you feel that you just you connect with your constituents like you said like grab the clipboard knock on some doors has that been part of your effort have you felt like you've connected with your community in a way running for office that you hadn't before I think I've been enlightened right that was the first thing I'm humbled and enlightened when I knock on doors that I've not connected with individual residents or constituents in my district um, again, I've been knocking doors in my district for years. So a lot of residents I knew, they grew with me in my career, you know, serving at school board levels, doing things for the community, being in activism or doing other uh, political activities in the community. So they had an understanding of my principles and values. Um, there was more work. There's always more work to do, you know, when you're connecting and getting people familiar with you and your values and um, how you um, engage in your community so that they have a good understanding of your character. Um, that's a consistent. Um, but I would like to say yes to that question. Yes, I feel like I'm connected and I represent the district. Um, a, a lot of our members are military, government, teachers, scientists, doctors, etc. I have a tw- I'm a 20-year cybersecurity specialist. Well, actually, next year will be my 20 years in my in my uh, profession or field, and um, you know, and that's relatable to my community. You know that I have a military connections, and that I'm a daughter of a vet. You know, and that I'm a woman of color. We have a lot of diversity. So I think, you know, if you're running for office and you're running in a community local, like you said, it's it's not just running. It's to make sure you can connect those dots. Like you're able, they, people can relate to your um, reasons why you're running. They can see that the work you've put in the work, and then they can see that you have their best interest at heart. And this also, again, is how you message it and how you connect with your voters and constituents. And I, and I also like what you said about policy running from the top down and knowing that there's protection at the state and community level, and that you want to be that person protecting your state from the federal level of policy since it's currently so um, terrible. <laughs> yeah, that's a good word. Yeah. Terrible. <laughs> so, so, I mean, can you speak to the importance of, of local issues? And like you said, you've, you've connected a lot of those dots for your community and, and just sort of why running at a local level is, is, such a huge, important part of politics, not just the presidency, not just the Senate or Congress, but it's such a huge part of policymaking in your community. Absolutely. I think local politics, believe it or not, are the most powerful politics. Yeah. Because those policies that trickle down, 
you at the, the, the general assembly level, even the board of county supervisor levels on some issues, and even the, or your town council, you make decisions, like you said, that are tangible. Those policies come to reality, and you have to make sure that how you implement them or what you choose, what parts of that policy you choose to implement at that level is in the best interest of your community because this impacts whether it is transportation, you know, increasing funding to your transportation infrastructure, that's huge. You know, it impacts families who are having children maybe going to college who don't drive or mass transit, you know, climate, you know, or environment, I should say. It, it impacts, you know, the way we do day-to-day -day business. If we're talking what we did this year in the General Assembly, we passed Medicaid expansion for 400,000 Virginians in my district over 1,200 are going to take advantage of having access to health care. Um, it still needs some evolution, some, some progression, but we've taken steps to offer vets, retirees, children with disabilities or those with pre-existing conditions, et cetera, or those who just don't have access to health care and need it and we're, we've done that. This is going to change lives. And so those are tangible check boxes, if you were, that said, hey, if it wasn't for not only um, Hala Ayala being elected, but the team that were elected to the General Assembly, um, it was a GOP-controlled General Assembly that would not sign off on Medicaid or health care for Virginians. We were not only leaving money on the table that our federal dollars were paying into, but we were leaving people out in the cold that didn't have access to affordable health care. And that impacts lives every day. We see it from the opioid crisis to just, you know, basic essentials of medical needs. So um, those are just things that a delegate who is thoughtful or is conscientious of what those policies can and cannot do or what that vote can or cannot do, that is the impact you can have. And of course, you know, it, it's, you know, and I think that the electorate is now becoming, excuse my, my lingo, woke. <laughs> you know, they're woke. They're like, oh crap, these terrible policies, you know, the ACA was going to be rolled back. And now Virginia has put in a protective mechanism against that. You know, um, you know, so these are things that are real time, real impact, and, and real positive changes that we've made in Virginia and started this movement um, across the nation. The nation is now woke. <laughs> they were not before. They are now. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I think last, I just want to ask you, what is, what's been your po most positive experience, your favorite part of being a part of politics at such a local level? What, what's been something great that's come out of it? You know, the sense of gratitude and humbleness and um, joy that I feel when somebody says, because you did this, you know, and you never know, right, unless somebody brings it to your attention, um, you, because you did this, you helped me get my tax money that I've been waiting for for six months in my pocket, or you helped me with an issue, a local issue, maybe it was a road issue or um Something is, is um, I don't want to say simple because it wasn't simple, but something that was meaningful to a constituent and we, they needed our help, we've made them happy. We've brought some type of positive experience to their lives 
and on a day-to-day basis because we've taken action. And I think that, you know, sometimes when you hear it, you're taken aback about what we've done. You know what you've done, you know, physically and spiritually and logically. But when you hear a constituent bring that to you, to your front, to your front door and say thank you, everything. That means everything. You know, it just means everything to me. And that is the most humbling part of my job that brings me just so much gratitude and makes me proud that I'm doing good things for the good people of the 51st District, you know? That's, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, Delegate Ayala, thank you so, so much for sitting down with me today. It's It's been such a pleasure. And I it's so wonderful to talk to women who are doing this important work on the ground, you know, every day that sometimes doesn't get the rec- sometimes local politics doesn't get the recognition that it should in my opinion you know what <laughs> women are ga- women are game changers and keep on running keep on grabbing your clipboard put on those sneakers sister and run and just run you can do it thank you again so much thank you take care you too bye-bye uh-huh. bye-bye Our second guest is Emma Collum. She is running to be a state house representative in Florida District 93. We are so lucky to have her. So what I really want to talk to you about is you are obviously running for local office, and that is so important, although it's not as sexy as federal office, uh, to to put it bluntly. No, 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 no. I get it. I get it. So I think I just really want to talk to you about... Why run for a, a, a state office? So why why focus more locally? And and what was the thought process there? Sure. So, well, and also it's just a funny question because as a first-time candidate and a woman running in the South, for lack of a better word, I mean, people forget Florida right. is still the South, you know. Um, it's funny because a lot of the conversation that comes my way is why not, why not run for school board first? You know, like I mean, why did you reach so big with this? I know. So... Um, but for me, why it was really important for this seat in particular and to run in a state seat is because Florida only has 13% um, of women who make up the legislature. Uh, so it is not, we are in no way given a seat at that table. I, I mean, we're not even near the table. Uh, so it's very important for me that the way that the state is made up involves women and especially democratic progressive women um and especially in this particular seat so this seat uh which is district 93 in broward county broward county is the most populated county in all of florida and this is the only red district in the entire county so if i'm able to flip this i have flipped the most populated county in florida entirely blue which is such a large step since 2020's redistricting and the and the presidential election. Like this has a major impact in this because me being able to turn this number out in a historically Republican seat, it would be. I mean, it would be historic. It would be monumental. Uh, more so than that, this district is has some big local issues. Uh, it's ground zero in climate change. The entire district is all in zone one of hurricane um, evacuation. It's a mandatory evacuation of the entire district. We have immense coral bleaching 
we have so we have no natural barrier there has because it's been represented by a republican who in fact is you know is a adamant opposer to climate change as a human product you know it's you literally can watch the impact of ignoring science how it's involved on this district both the economy the resiliency um you know the natural infrastructure is crumbling because of the saltwater intrusion. The economy will fail because this district is the district that ha- holds the really famous boat show with, you know, literally millions and billions of dollars being pumped into this district by the marine industry. Um, this district will not exist in 10 to 15 years, quite frankly, if there isn't someone who is productively stepping up and saying, you know, we need representation in Tallahassee that, a, believes in equity for all Floridians, but also realizes that it won't matter because this district will not exist. Right. So that's why it was really important for me to step into this seat. Right. I mean, that is that is just kind of, it, it, it's so uh, <laughs> shocking almost to, to hear someone yeah, kind of say that out right? loud. Like, oh my goodness, it's been such a, that it's been so terribly represented that it could, there's a threat of it not even being there, which is kind of incredible. Right. So, Right. So like right. you said, so Broward County is huge. And and Broward County is also where the Parkland school shooting happened. And I know that that gun control and common sense gun reform is definitely an issue that has sort of spotlighted on this this district. So is gun violence an issue that you feel strongly about? Yes. So a little bit about my background. Um, I'm, I'm an attorney and my background started Um, My legal work started in domestic violence survivors and ensuring their protection. And I can tell you from a firsthand perspective, both personally and in my work, the difference um, between whether a domestic domestic violence survivor is a survivor and whether or not it's a tragedy as if if there is a gun in the home. So, you know, that, and I'm young enough at age 33 to remember I was in 10th grade when the Columbine shooting happened and we were evacuated in our school and we then had to do drills for gun shooting prevention. Um, I'm of this generation where gun violence in school is a real threat. And I've grown up with that. You know, I, I remember with my mother as a public school teacher when Sandy Hook happened and she was a kindergarten teacher and just watching her weep, thinking of those little babies that were brutally shot down. So when Parkland occurred, um, on February 14th, what happened was the NRA actually tweeted out a Valentine's Day tweet saying, for this Valentine's Day, get your loved one an assault weapon. And then three hours later, that was the weapon that killed our neighbors. And there's not a single person in Broward County who was not impacted by the 17 deaths that occurred at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. Uh, you know, what happened afterwards is is a tremendous wave of activism spurred on by those incredible students uh, who would not sit down and be told that they would become statistics. You know, I really probably traveled up to Tallahassee with them and watched them tearfully beg senators um, and House representatives to speak about the importance of local government, you know, beg them to put an assault weapons ban in place. And, you know, while laws were passed, and that's amazing considering the amount of money that NRA puts into Florida, an assault weapons ban was not passed. A universal background law was not passed. Um, and in fact, what was passed was a law that required teachers to be armed in Florida schools in order to be recipients of state 
money to harden their schools. And, you know, it's, it's not just Parkland. This district also is right next to the Fort Lauderdale airport where two years ago we had a mass shooting there. You know, I am, I'm saddened to say that after the Pulse massacre, we did nothing after that in Florida, um, you know, where something like 57 of our neighbors were brutally murdered. Two weeks ago, there were two shootings, one at a high school and one at a video game um, event in Jacksonville. So this is a continuing problem in Florida where, to be clear, we are 50 out of 50 in mental health care spending. We have... The NRA literally uses Florida as a breeding ground for horrific Second Amendment laws. Um, Take a look at the Stand Your Ground, um, which has been consistently used and propagated by the NRA. And quite frankly, it's a license to kill, and it's a license to kill black men. It's it's something that directly affects affects our impacted communities. Uh, So for me, it's incredibly important because what I've described to you, a nightclub is not safe. An airport is not safe. A high school is not safe. A video game arena is not safe. Uh, you know, so at what point do we stand up and we demand of our representatives better? Do we demand safety? Do we demand feeling that we can go out in the community without a constant fear of being harmed? And that, for me, is essential. And going up to Tallahassee, I am going to demand a future ban on assault weapons because that's really important to me. Right. Do you Do you feel like that local... Not I shouldn't say local, but but state government is sort of the uh, a good place to affect this sort of change because something like gun law, you know, I've talked to Shannon Watts before of uh, Moms Demand Action, and you know, she says that she's she said over and over that the the change that is made most immediately is always at a state level. So, do you feel like state level government is a is a is a good breeding ground for creating some of these issues that? haven't taken a hold in a a more federal arena? 100%. Um, State, I think people have a misconception that all impactful laws come from the federal government. But in fact, most of everyday citizens' lives are controlled by what happens at their local state representative level. As I said, after Parkland, there was an opportunity to hear on the floor of the Tallahassee legislature a bill that would put a future ban on assault weapons. And because Democrats in Florida are such the minority, that bill was not even called to the floor for debate. They did not even debate this bill a mere five days after 17 people, 15 children were murdered by an assault weapon in Parkland. That is your local government in action that directly impacts your everyday life. I also, I want to talk a little bit about this idea of a quote unquote pink wave. We talk about a lot of waves, a blue wave, and now this <laughs> pink wave. So, you know, you you, you mentioned that or, or only 13% of the Florida State Legislature are women, and that is not yes. nearly close to representational. So, do you do you feel like you're you're part of the pink wave, or are you just a person who is best fit for this job? I know that it that's kind of a leading question, and they're not mutually exclusive. But but just sort of, can you speak to this idea of a pink wave and and aiming for gender parity while also just getting the best people 
in these positions to do the job. So here's what's funny about the pink wave. Um, you know, and I'm really, I, I'm really proudly one of the founders of the Women's March on Washington. And I watched the, this be a catalyst for women to stand up and run for office and make sure that their voices are not silenced by what this administration represents. What I have found not surprising is that the women that you see standing up to run, myself included, are doctors, are lawyers, are activists, are these incredibly well-versed, you know, and very robustly engaged in their communities. They're the best of the best, to be quite frankly. These are not your average candidates. Um, you know, it's so often we see, um, we see candidates, you know, I think there's something to the idea that we as a culture accept and expect men to always just step up and step in because that's their right. They, they have a right to have their voices be the loudest in the room. And women, so often you see the situation where women allow others to take their ideas, take a step back, um, you know, be allowed to be relegated as the more nurturing role or the community role. We don't, you know, we don't demand the same pay for our work and we don't demand that our ideas be the, be the most heard in the room. And what you've seen come out of the Women's March movement and all the incredible female movements before them, especially you know, women of color movements that really cannot be forgotten in all of this and have to be put first and foremost is that you are seeing these wave of candidates that aren't just female candidates. They are the best candidates in their race. And what's been really incredible for me is there is a community of female candidates in Florida. Um, the Mary Barzi Flores, the Anna Escamani, the Tracy Polston, um, that there are these incredibly accomplished women and we've all held ourselves in camaraderie with each other. You can see all of our tweets and our social media. We're always lifting each other up, referring people to each other, making sure that our races are noticed by each other, and really looking forward to having this incredibly well-versed, robust, and female-empowered freshman class in Tallahassee. And, and that's the kind of thing that can happen when women run collaborative efforts um, to really effectuate change in a way that I've never seen before. And it, it's really incredible. Yeah, that, that's really what I've noticed in this quote unquote pink wave. And I'm only putting it in quotes because I think less of a pink <laughs> wave. It's just it's just these extremely qualified, smart people who happen to be women who are standing right. up to take these positions. I, I like to say, especially when I'm exasperated or like doubting myself, I say, you know, like, Lord, please give me the confidence of a mediocre white man so that I may go forth <laughs> and make and make change in the world. Because I mean, I, I feel like that that's it. From your mouth to God's ear. Exactly. God's ear. I feel like that's it. I feel like we've really, like you said, we've accepted mediocrity from men for so long. And, and that's, and these, these candidates, pink, blue, whatever, are just so, so qualified. So when you take a holistic approach to your campaign. You obviously have lots of priorities. You are not a single issue candidate. You are, you know, taking on this 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 whole thing. What has been your biggest challenge on the campaign trail? My biggest challenge is that the boys club is real and they don't want new members. Mm. And so it's been very important for me to be brave and kind. 
because a lot of unkind things are said to young female candidates. You're not experienced enough. It's not your turn. Why don't you wait? This is very naive. And, we, well, you're only about women's issues. And so when I've repeatedly been asked by people, well, so what are the women's issues that you're representing? I say, what makes you think that women's issues are any different than the community's issues at large? For example, in Florida, women are paid 80 cents to a man's dollar. Women of color, 70. Indigenous women, 60. Asian women, 50. The gender wage gap is not just a woman's issue because it takes millions of dollars in a woman's lifetime that can be given back into the economy in Florida. We are literally shooting ourselves in the foot over some sort of ideology that says a woman's time and her work should not be valued the same as her male counterpart. That is hurting all of us. In Florida, we made the decision to leave $5 billion of Medicaid expansion on the table. Now, the most impacted by those, approximately a million people who have no medical care in Florida currently are women and young children. But this is not just a woman's issue because everybody in Florida is affected by the higher premiums that occur because those relatively healthy women and children are not in the Medicare pool. So millions of dollars are being spent out of everyday Floridians' pockets to make up for, again, what was an ideological decision. We pay teachers in Florida 47th in the nation when we are the third largest state, 47th in the nation. And what that does is allow us to have failing public schools that are not prepared to compete in an increasingly global economy. What that does is allow larger corporations or mid-sized corporations to not want to pick Florida as the staging ground for their next endeavor because no one is interested in bringing their employees and their revenue to an area that does not have qualified public schools and well-paid teachers. So all of those issues that I just described to you, those are women's issues in that they impact all of us. And right. women are over 50% of the population that it impacts. People seem and to for forget me, that, huh? Yeah. Yeah, it's really, you know, we, we exist too. We're, we're not in this insular bubble. And that's, I think, what's been the important thing about me running for this campaign, and I say it ad nauseum. We do not operate in silos. Everything impacts each other. And to ignore those issues is to ignore all of the issues because they are not insular. They do not occur in, occur in a vacuum. And, you know, for me, it's just been very important to be the most informed, the most well-spoken and have all of the facts on my side so that when I'm called inexperienced, when I'm called naive, when I'm told to wait my turn, I can turn around and say 20 years of waiting my turn in Florida has given us the lowest public schools, a environmental catastrophe and an economy that has jobs only with one of three people living in basically working poverty. I can't afford to wait my turn because Florida can't afford for me to wait my turn. Well, Emma, it has been an 
a pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for taking time to speak with me about your campaign and your, you know, plan to change the world and and how <laughs> you but you you really you juggle all of these issues so beautifully and it you know it, it can be hard to to keep a message with so many things impacting your district but it's it's just been wonderful to speak with you so thank you oh it's such a pleasure thank you thank you for doing this and getting all of our names and our voices and our messages out there i really appreciate it of course of course and good luck on the campaign trail we have 50 days <laughs> Thank you so much. Who's coming? I know. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. (laughs) Take care. I know local politics can be a tough sell. With so many elected seats to pay attention to, it can be difficult to process all of the information and really easy to focus on only races that garner national attention. But women running locally and at a statewide level are doing so to affect real change in their communities. They know their constituents and care about the community that they live in. Local politics is powerful and it affects our day-to-day lives. So please get out there. You can learn more about Delegate Hala Ayala at www.ayalafordelegate.com and follow her on Twitter at Hala Ayala. You can learn more about Emma Collum at emmacollum.com and follow her on Twitter at Collum underscore Emma. And while you're at it, like I said, take a second to find out who your local reps are and if they're up for re-election. Find out what they support and what they've done for your area. It may not be national, but it is so crucial to a healthy democracy. So thank you all so much for listening. Be sure to join us next week on Candidate Real Conversations with Women Running for Office. You don't want to miss any of the interviews we have scheduled. We are going to be talking about everything from healthcare to immigration to voting rights. It is going to be a fascinating couple of weeks. So please remember to listen, subscribe, and share if you like what we're doing. Leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find us. You can learn more about these candidates and more at emilyslist.com. You can also find us at hellbentmedia.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at hellbentpod or at emilyslist. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next week.